today we're going to talk about Facebook and family and digital media and a number of different things. And I'll just start off by saying, obviously, I'm not anti-technology. Okay, I've got a MacBook. If you went to my house, you'd see I've got a big iMac. I've got mobile phones and all this kind of stuff. And our whole ministry is geared around trying to take advantage of mobile phones. So we're not in any way saying, take your technology and drop it in the trash can. All right? But what we are saying is be the master of your technology rather than it master you. Now, I'm going to deviate for just a second at the beginning of this because the very first time I came here, um, what was that, seven or eight years ago, Bob? It was before I was married. Before I was married. I came once before I was married. And um, meeting in the school. And um, then my wife and I came while we were on our honeymoon. That probably wasn't the best idea of mine. That probably shouldn't have been part of our honeymoon, but we had a good time here. And we shared part of our testimony from our courtship. And I'll use that word loosely. I, I would say intentional relationship is the one I've used now. Um, and somebody came up to me and said, now you didn't share very much about your early relationship with your wife. We should hear more about that. They're thinking about some things from a few years ago. And so... Um, because of that prompting, I'm going to take just a couple of minutes and share a couple of highlights that may be meaningful to some of you who are hoping to get married one day. Um, when I met Kate, she was um, basically somebody I couldn't imagine having a relationship with. She, just, she was in the country of Burkina Faso for just a few months, and I'd been there for years. I thought, why in the world would I try to start a relationship with somebody is going to be leaving in a very short period of time. Another thing is she was really pretty. And that was just probably a little too much to ask of the Lord there. Um, but eventually, I became convinced that I should approach her. Now, I talked about intentional relationship. So I was pretty intentional. Remember, I wasn't dating. And I felt like one of the problems that fellows had was they weren't very clear about what their intentions were. And so once I decided that I was interested in her, I wanted to let her know what my interest was. But I was scared. And so I decided, okay, Lord, I'm going to have to say something to this girl. And we had an opportunity. There was a fellow who was leaving the country, and we were taken to the airport, and it left us alone in a vehicle going back to the mission center. I thought, okay, here we go. So we're driving across Ouagadougou. And I, <sighs> and this went on all the way across town. We were about one block from the mission center, and I'm like, come on, Ed, come on. So I stopped the car. And I turned to Kate and I said, well, Kate, I've really enjoyed getting to know you and the time that you spent here. Just wanted to let you know that. She's like, well, thank you. I, I hope I've never done anything to give you any, um, uh, you know, uh, inappropriate ideas or uh, inappropriate relationship or anything. I said, oh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> um, 
So we arrived back at the mission center and parked the car, and she was getting ready to get out, and I was like, oh, this is the last chance. I said, Kate, please don't open the door. Hang on for a second. She's like, sure, what is it? I said, Kate, I've been praying for a long time that the Lord would bring a wife to me. I don't know that that could be you, but I would like to find out if we're well-suited for one another. Would you be willing to explore a relationship? That was pretty intentional, wasn't it? <laughs> now, let me tell you about Kate. She had absolutely zero interest in being married at that time. She was on her way to do her master's degree. She knew she was going to do a PhD. She had a degree in, in voice, so she was a professional singer. She could play violin and piano. She had, the world was her oyster, everything was before her, and marriage was zero on her radar screen. And here I come saying, I'd like to talk about this. She was completely shocked. And as she sat there in the car, I said, are you okay? She's like, yeah. We better get out of the car, people start talking. So we got out of the car, and she went off to her room, and I went to my room. And in it was a short-term worker from Switzerland. And I walked in the room. He's a real gregarious guy. He said, hey, it's good to see you. Let's play games. Where is everybody? I thought, I don't know. I don't know where they're at. He's like, where's Kate? Have you seen Kate? Have you seen Bill? He's like, I don't, I don't know. I think maybe they're in their rooms. So he starts calling everybody. And five minutes later, they're all at my place, including Kate. She comes walking in, cool as a cucumber. You would never have known I'd said anything to her at all. And so we sit there and we play games that night. And I'm thinking, what is this girl thinking? And this went on for several days. No indication, no feedback. And finally, I just stopped her and I said, Kate, what are you thinking? And she said, well, I'll just be honest with you. I don't really find you that attractive. <laughs> now, I share that with you, not to embarrass Kate, <laughs> She cringes a little bit when I say that now. <laughs> but for every one of you, that for you, that might seem like the worst possible thing that could happen. One, you're a girl, and a guy you think is not very attractive shows interest in you. A guy, you expressed interest, and a girl says, oh, I'm sorry, I just don't think you're very good looking. <laughs> what do you do then? It's over. Boom. Over. Not the Lord's involved. So I turned to her and I said, okay, um, this isn't Hollywood. I'm not asking to marry you right now. So I was trying to find out if we're well suited for one another. I said, if we are, then I'll pursue your heart. If I can't win your heart, you don't have to marry me. Oh, I didn't think about it that way. <laughs> so she was silent for a couple more days. <clears throat> and then she came back and said, I don't want to make a decision because she knew that if she made a decision that stuff was going to start happening. We're going to have to start talking. I said, well, you know, not making a decision is making a decision. Yeah, you're right. She said, well, okay, I'm willing to start discussing things, but I have to warn you, I just don't think it's going to go anywhere. Now, Humanly speaking, does that sound like a great start to relationship? Oh, I forgot. I should have prefaced it with one of my other amazing feats of relationship building. Before, when I very first met her, um, she was coming into 
the administration building on the Mission Center. And I'd heard about this new girl on, on the center. You know, this red-headed Irish girl. Her name was Katie McFarland. Now, how can you get any better than that? <laughs> and being the typical American, I gathered all my information about Ireland from the movie The Quiet Man. <laughs> and so she walked in the door. I, was, I just happened to be walking out. We met in one of those magical movie moments, right? And I go, top of the morning to you, Katie McFarland. And she looked at me and goes, nobody says that. <laughs> I just kept on walking. <laughs> so I would made a good impression. Now, if you did not believe in the sovereignty of God, our marriage will prove to you that God overrides in all circumstances. And as we began that process of discussing things and talking together step by step, we began to find we had a deep basis of commonality. Then one day we were talking and she said, well, Ed, I've got some very important questions for you. And so she had some theological questions for me. And so she asked me those questions, and I won't tell you what they were because you've got your own. <clears throat> and she said, what about this? I said, well, if you've got a question about that, there's two more that go with it, so I'll give you the answer to all three. So I, I answered those off, and then she got completely silent, really tense. I said, are you okay? She's fine. Are you right? I'm fine. So a couple more days goes by, and finally I said, Kate, you're really upset. This started when we had this discussion about theology. What's the problem? She said, that morning I got up, and I thought, what am I going to do with this guy? He keeps wanting to talk to me, and I mean, this can't go anywhere. All I know, I'll ask him that question. And if he doesn't have the right answer, we're done. Unfortunately for her, I gave her the exact right answers in all three. <laughs> and so she's going, oh, no, now what I got to do? Got to keep talking to this guy. So the more we talked, the more we found out we did not differ on anything substantial at all. To this day, we've never found an area, a major area of theology, life, you know, how do you raise children, how you spend money, all this kind of, have not found any major differences. And that was not normal. And so we've been blessed in our relationship, not because we agree, but because God brought us together. And so my encouragement to each of you who are hoping to be married one day is, one, reject the Hollywood philosophy that's been fed to you, even subconsciously. Kate herself did not grow up in a family that watched lots and lots of movies but she had been deeply impacted by the Hollywood vision of romance. All of us have been. And also, to not be afraid. You know, the Lord, I mean, there were lots of heartaches along the road before I met Kate. Lots of misfires and misunderstandings and things that happened along the way. And, but what I've just shown is that I couldn't mess this up. When it came the right time, I was just who I was in the Lord, and it worked. 
He brought it together. And if you're in the Lord, following Him, He will do that for you. He'll bring the right one, and He'll see it through. The last thing I will say is to the young men in the the room, and that's be a man. It's hard to be a man. Okay? You have to take the brunt of the fear and the responsibility of getting out there and deciding to make your intentions known and then living with the consequences. It's a lady's prerogative to respond to you, whatever she responds, but it's your job to get out there and make your intentions known and to follow up with it. That's a hard job. But you know what? That's just the beginning. It gets harder after that. So you better get used to it. God will give you the grace to do it. It's crucial that you do it. And the ladies will respect you, even if they decide they're not going to be the ones that's for you. They would rather you be honest and clear with them about your intentions and follow up on that than to be afraid and shy and retiring, hang around the edges and not be clear. Now, how you work out that with parents and all those kinds of things, I'll leave you to that and your pastor. But my, my encouragement to the young men is be a man. Stand in the Lord. Don't have fear. And be willing to take that risk in Him. It'll be worth it. All right. Done with romance. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. So that's another picture of our family. And, and please do get a, a picture card. We made these in Walmart just for you. <laughs> Matter of fact, I'm just going to pass those back. Now, because I deal in technology in my ministry, a couple of years ago, some parents came to me and they said, you know, all of our children have cell phones and we all use the internet and we're Facebook and these different kinds of things, but it just seems to us like there's something really important we ought to understand. Can, do you have information you could share with us on that? And so with that query, I started going through the research that I used for my ministry and pulling things together that were focused on families. And the more I did that, the more I realized that there was probably a very significant gap between the things that we use and what we know about them. And so I began to put this presentation together to share with you, not to say fear technology or fear Facebook or fear cell phone, but to be the master of it, to use it rather than it use you. So let's talk about Facebook. Facebook has over a billion users has 680 million mobile users globally. They have 618 million users who log on a day, every day. 300 million photos are uploaded every day. There's something like 100 billion photos inside Facebook now. And 82% of those who use Facebook live outside the United States. If you could see this, The number one country for using Facebook is the United States. Number two is Brazil with 66 million users. Uh, Number three is India with 61 million users. And number four is Indonesia with 47 million users. Um, It is a huge international community and the United States only makes up a small fraction of those users. Mark Zuckerberg is the CEO and the creator, founder of Facebook. And he has a very distinctive influence on it. A little bit of his background. His father's a dentist. His mother is a Freudian psychiatrist. 
and his hobby is fencing. Now, I don't know if you're a fencer, but fencing is a fairly aggressive sport. Uh, university was Harvard, but he's a dropout, dropped out to start Facebook, and he was a computer science major, but he's actually a double major, and most people miss the second one. His second major was psychiatry, psychology. And it shows in his engineering of Facebook, he has put psychological principles into the way it's designed on purpose, and that'll come up as we go through this. Um, one of the other marks that Mark has put on the uh, Facebook is he's colorblind. And so white and blue are some of the only colors he can see. That's the reason Facebook's white and blue, because that's, that's what he's able to see. Now, what we didn't know was that Facebook seeks to re-engineer society very specifically. Mr. Zuckerberg has a view that uh, a very distinctive view about privacy and identity. And he would hold to the idea that if you have more than one identity, the way he's described it, then you have no integrity. But we'll see a little more about what those words mean. There's a thing called Zuckerberg's Law, and that is that people will share twice as much next year about themselves as they did this year. And so the more you share, the bigger Facebook gets. The more interesting Facebook becomes, the more people go to Facebook. Uh, Facebook is such a fascinating place because it has so much information about so many people to look at. And so they want you to share more and more, and they specifically structure Facebook to facilitate that. Now, he will make the supposition that people become more comfortable sharing more about themselves all the time. There's a kernel of truth in that, but there's also significant untruth in that, and that Facebook has one of the highest user dissatisfaction ratings of any service on the Internet. And that's because Facebook is constantly pushing their users to share more information than they feel comfortable doing. And, of course, it's to their advantage uh, economically. Traditionally, when we think of self and the way we interact with people, we would be a bit like this. We would have the information that we keep to ourselves and the Lord. There's some things that we know about ourselves and the Lord knows about us that nobody knows. That's just it. There's just us. Then, the things that family and friends know about us, that's just for them. It doesn't get shared outside that circle. Then there's the things that people who are work colleagues or uh, people at school with us, they would know about us. And then, of course, the things that we expect government and um, commerce to know about us. So we we control the barriers of knowledge. When you develop a friendship, you, you share bits and pieces of personal knowledge about yourself as your friendship grows. And so that creates a bond. You're the one who controls the gateway of the knowledge about yourself personally. But Mr. Zuckerberg's view of the future is that all those boundaries would be erased. That you would not have a different view of yourself than the then commerce would have of you. That all the information that's available about you would be equally accessible and knowable almost. He'll make a few exceptions, especially when it comes to his own photographs. Um, but in general, 
you would, you would not have different ways of seeing you. Now, I don't think that that's probably a very healthy way to proceed. I mean, do you want your plumber to have the same knowledge and information about you that your children do? That doesn't seem to make sense. But in the way Facebook is structured, you know, you see many professionals say, you know, like us on Facebook. Or they used to say, friend us on Facebook before they had the like. Go ahead and friend us on Facebook. But if you friended your dentist, that meant your dentist could see your wall and all the postings that were on your wall and who all your friends were. Did you really want to share all that with them? Was that the kind of relationship you thought you had with them? Now, one of the things that Mark says that they're trying to do at Facebook, now they'll tell you we're building a social network so you can connect with the world, you can have a connection with your friends. He says, we're trying to build a map of all the trust relationships in the world. Who do you know and who do you trust and who influences you? We want to know all of it. Why do they want to know those things? Well, it turns out that Facebook knows more about you than you know about yourself. Matter of fact, there's been a court case about it. There was a, a person who went and sued Facebook. They said, I would like you to release to me everything you know about me. It's me, after all. It's information about me. I should be able to get a hold of it. And Facebook said, no, you may not have all the information we know about you. So he took them to court and they sued. And Facebook's defense was, we would release confidential business model information if we were to tell you what we know about you. And the court agreed with them and they did not have to reveal it. And here's why. Social scientists study what we call social graphs. A social graph is something that shows the connections. I have a picture of it in just a second. Between you and other people. Now you may have heard of the six degrees of separation before. That between you and any person on the earth, there's about six relationships difference. So between you and a trash picker in Calcutta, there's very likely a chain of six people that you could go through to get to them. What we know that's measurable and provable scientifically is that there's you, there's your friends, there's the friends of your friends, and there's the friends of your friends' friends, out about halfway. There is a measurable influence you exert on all those layers of people, and there's a measurable influence that they all exert on you. That's a, that's a picture of a social graph. Here's you, and here's the different relationships you have, and the different ties you have to different people in different communities. Now, what you probably didn't know was how powerful you are. The scripture gives us some indication of this. When it says you're the light of the world, the salt of the earth, when we see the remnant that's represented in scripture where whole cities and nations are preserved from destruction by just a few Christians being there, a few believers being there. And you're like, why does that happen? Well, the Lord has designed things so that 
we have enormous impact and influence and we don't really have any idea about how broad it is. They can measure and show that you're 15% more likely to be happy if you have a friend who's happy, if you're directly connected with somebody in a meaningful relationship who's a happy person. Two degrees, that means your friend's friend. If your friend's friend, who you have never met, is a happy person, you're 10% more likely to be happy. Even though you never met them, why? Because that person you never met had an influence on somebody you had met, and that person had an influence on you. Three degrees of separation. Your friend's friend's friend. If they're a happy person, you're 6% more likely to be a happy person, and you have no idea who it is. You've never even, you've never even heard their name. They might not even live on the same continent, but because they influence the friend of your friend and they've influenced your friend, they influenced you. You've heard that whole thing about, you know, have a smile on your face and it, you give it away to other people and pretty soon they're smiling and then we go over buy a Coke and the world sings together. But there's a kernel of truth in it. Your countenance can have a measurable impact on thousands of people every day, most of whom you never met. Most of whom you never met. But notice, each unhappy friend decreases the likelihood of happiness by 7%. So there's this immense shift in dynamicism that's going on between all the relationships of all these people. Now, I think this has enormous validity for Christians and the church. If you're walking in the Lord, if you're living the power of the Holy Spirit, you are like radioactive. I mean, everywhere you go, you're exuding influence, powerful influence on every person you see and two layers of people you never see. The more you walk in the Lord, the more powerful your influence is for Him. And it has a measurable impact on the world. Take heart. Now, the reason social scientists are interested in this is because not only does happiness work like this, so does being fat. If you've got fat friends, you're more likely to be fat. If their friends are fat, you're more likely to be fat. Because that influences them, that influences you. All kinds of things function exactly that way. All kinds of things. Same thing goes with healthy eating. You've got lots of friends who are healthy eaters, you're more likely to be a healthy eater, even if the people, you've never met them. So what about the business model behind all this? This is Sheryl Sandberg, one of the most powerful women in the IT industry. And she works for Facebook. And she says, marketers have always been looking for a way to try to get you to sell things to your friends. And that's what we do at Facebook. Now, you didn't see that quote across the Facebook banner when you logged in, did you? That's what she says to the marketers who buy the advertising time from them. We are the best advertising vehicle in the history of man because we sell your products through people's friendships. So when you sign up for Facebook and you go to Starbucks 
and you check in, say, hey, I'm at Starbucks. Hey, come have a coffee with me, or I like Starbucks. You've just become an advertising vector for a business, and Facebook made money off of you. Now, there's also unintended consequences. We all have, those who have Facebook accounts have Facebook profiles, and uh, you put a lot of information in there. And nowadays, young people often use this as a way to sort of scope out somebody that they're interested in. They won't actually go and meet somebody and talk to them and take the time to hear from them. They'll get on Facebook and secretly look around to see, you know, who's this person's friend and what are they talking about and are they cool and what kind of photos are there, oh, they're cute, this kind of thing. And then they'll work up their courage to maybe go meet the person. But we don't think about the other side of our profiles. Now, it took me a long time to find that picture. Most of the pictures I found were nothing I could show to a church group. I just did a search on foolish Facebook photos. And the things I got, I could never show to a mixed audience. Okay. Now, just to let you know, 49% of employers use social networking resources to look at their applicants to see if they're good potential employees. Act number has gone up high, higher since this. This is about a year old now. You didn't think about that, did you, when you put some of those photos up? Obviously, this fellow with the beer bottle wasn't thinking about it. That when he went to apply for a job, his employer was going to go through his Facebook profile and see what was his activities, what kinds of things did he write about, what kind of friends did he have, did he comport himself in a way that was going to make them legally endangered as a company. And so employers are sifting you out before you even get past the interview when you're doing foolish things on Facebook. Facebook is also keeping up with you. Um, there's a lot of text there, but basically what the idea is, you know that you can like things with Facebook. So you go to different websites and you go, oh, I like this, click. But what you didn't know is that Facebook, even when you log out of Facebook, is continuing to monitor the websites you're going to and the things that you're looking at and keeping that into their database. They've been caught out three times on this. And they keep saying it's a technical error. But somehow it never, ever gets fixed. And so if you're a regular user of Facebook, they very likely have a log of every website you've ever looked at. Facebook is also a place we spend a lot of time. In the United States, 10% of all web time is spent on Facebook. And we spend a lot of time on the web. It's the single most, the single biggest time sink in a lot of people's lives. They spend more time on it than almost anything else they do. There's a new feature, I don't know if you've seen it yet, called GIFs. And um, it's, it's a very interesting idea. They've got all this information about all you people, all these people you know, which includes their birthdays and their anniversaries and when they graduated and all these kinds of things. And so it'll give you a notification. It's Joey's birthday. Would you like to send him a gift? 
And because it's got all this information on Joey, it'll give you a selection of things that a thoughtful person could get them in different price ranges that he'll very likely enjoy. And because it already has his postal address, all you have to do is click send this gift. They'll wrap it up in Facebook paper. They'll send it express shipping to arrive the next day. And it will go to wherever he's at. And it'll probably be something he likes. It's magical. And just so you get the credit for being generous, you can tick the box so that it goes into your news feed so all your friends can know how generous you were to the friend that you sent a gift to. <laughs> now, on the face of it, I say, in one sense, great. It's a great service. Helps you be thoughtful and take care of things and stuff like this. Don't have to keep up all those addresses. That's, that's really handy. But another side of it, whatever happened to doing something privately? Whatever happened about you knowing the person well enough to know what they might like, rather than Facebook giving you a selection that their um, customers would like you to send? Do you see that something's degraded here? Another thing is happening is that I can, I can see the potential for sort of a Facebook Phariseeism where, oh, well, I better give a good gift to them so everybody knows I'm a generous person to them. And, oh, I better make sure that they get a good gift. And, oh, I better make sure that such and such, and that people know that I gave them a gift. Uh, this could get to be expensive. Brand new feature you may not be aware of is called Facebook search or graph search. They've built up this enormous database of all this information about you and all these other people. With one billion users, they say there's more than one trillion connections in their database between people and things there. Um, as I said, probably over 100 billion photos. It's crazy, isn't it? Now, what you can do with this even the tech bloggers find disturbing. And they say it's incredibly addictive. Um, here's an example of one of the searches they did. Single guy gets on Facebook search. Single girls within one mile of me. Click. Out comes the results. Picture, profile, geo coordinates. There was an app that was out last year called Girls Around Me, and it was a, a company that took stuff from Facebook, Foursquare, and other social media, mashed it all together into this app, and you could do that. You, you'd be a guy who's got the GPS on the app, and you just press the button and say, where's the girls near me? Beep. And a little radar, boop, 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 this. Little photos start popping up. You know, go three blocks, turn the corner, go into this restaurant, and there's a girl who's single, Go get her. 200,000 people downloaded the app within a few days. Then women's rights groups began to complain this was a stalking app. Okay, So after half a million downloads, they withdrew the app from the app store on Apple. But you can do the same thing in Facebook search. And the amount of information that's there is unfathomable. Now, I should mention... Again, this whole thing about Facebook, how it's engineered. In the early days of Facebook, uh, they started at the Ivy League schools. 
And so um, they only gave accounts to people at Harvard and Yale and Princeton and stuff like that. And once they got accepted, then they would expand that to other universities. And they launched across universities all across the United States first before they opened up to the general public. And as they did this, they began to, to look at how people used the service. And what they found, if they put a camera on the computer to watch the person using it, you know, they pay them a fee to come in and use it for a while, is the typical user would sit at the screen and they would click with their mouse and scroll for hour after hour after hour, not drinking, not eating, just staring at all the information they could get about all these people. And in-house, in they began to give this a nickname. They called it trance time because the people looked like they were in a trance looking at all this information. Well, then it became sort of a thing to say, well, the next feature we roll out, got to up the trance time. How can we get people even more interested in what we do? And that comes into what you have now called timeline. One of the things I noticed about how people were using their profiles is that when they would look at their friends' profiles, they would always go back as far in their history as possible to look at things in their early life. Now, Facebook was only a few years old, so you hit a dead end pretty quickly. And they began to see, ah, there's a hunger to know more and more about people's earlier lives and more about their background. So let's make it easy to do that. Let's go ahead and develop a timeline to where you can encompass their entire life, most of which is before Facebook started. And then we'll encourage all their friends, including their moms, who are now Facebook users, to go in and fill in the gaps. Go in and put in the things from camp where they went and pictures of them in the bathtub when they were three years old and all this kind of stuff because they know that people are intensely interested, voyeuristic might be another word, to know all this information about us. And they will spend hours upon hours upon hours reading through this information to see more and more about each other. Another feature you may not be aware of is called faces. Now, every time you upload a photo, Facebook has um, artificial intelligence that goes in and recognizes the face of every face that's in that photo. And they add it to the database. Now, they may ask you to identify that person the first time. Who, who is that? You may say, oh, that's Susie. And after that, it'll know Susie. Every picture you put up there after that, it's going to say, there's Susie. And you could do a search on all your photos for photos with Susie in them, and it'll, it'll sort them out for you if you wanted to do that. Now, when they rolled this feature out, they didn't tell anybody. So they started crunching through all the photos, doing all this analysis, and then they released the news, oh, we've started this new service. You can choose to use it or not. But by then it was too late. If you said no, they had already crunched through all your photos. Can you uh, have any implications about this? Well, what if you didn't upload any photos of certain people in your thing, but other people did? Or what if your friends are uploading photos of you in other places? It's recognizing you. And it's categorizing you every place your face shows up. Also, another thing that happens with photos is most of us don't realize that most of the cameras and phones that we use to take photos embed the geo-coordinates of where the photo was taken when we took the photo. 
And so unless you've turned that feature off, many of the photos you put on your blogs, you put on your Facebook, and things like this, that information's encoded, and they can actually go to that spot where that photo was taken without you being invited. So for example, this came up with a, a tech writer. He was showing off a new pickup truck he got that was real high tech on his blog. And some people downloaded that, found the geo coordinates, and they showed up at his house to do an interview with him. He'd never publicized where his house was. He's like, how did you find this out? He's like, we got it off the picture you uploaded. Well, I wasn't, I don't want that happening. He says, well, you should have taken the image out. You should have erased that information. That's your responsibility. Now, of course, for missionaries, that has implications. If you've got a picture you've taken of people that you're working with in some remote area, um, if you get their faces at all, they'll be able to identify them, and then they'll certainly be able to get the geo-coordinates. So with over 60 billion photos uploaded by the end of 2010, they have this huge database of information about relationships and places and things that you're involved in that they have all that information and they're not giving you the opportunity to touch it. So how does it matter? Well, again, our friend Eric Schmidt with Google says if we can see 14 photos of you, we will be able to identify you even if none of them have your name attached to them. You don't think you've got 14 photos on the web? You've got Facebook photos. So Google is going through all the photos on the web, doing this facial recognition thing. Facebook is going through all the photos on the web, doing this facial recognition thing. And our dear friends at Apple are doing the same thing. If you have a MacBook, every time you put photos into iPhoto, it does automatic facial recognition, and you cannot turn it off. All right, now we're going to shift away from Facebook for a moment. <sighs> Just take a deep breath. Wind down a little bit, okay? Now remember, I'm going to reiterate this right now. I am not anti-technology. See? I've got an Apple. I've got an iPhone. I've got another phone over here. You know, our ministry is about technology. So I'm not anti-technology. But I am pro-education. I think it's very important that you understand all the implications of the technology you're using so that you can make wise decisions about how you use it. Okay, let's talk about media. We all like media. Our, uh, Apple did a study, and this goes to show you the kind of things they can know. Because you upload and sync with iTunes, they know what the song list is in all your iPods and what amount of memory capacity you're using. So they were able to do a study that showed that something like 95% of the capacity of all the iPods is used up. People actually just cram them full of content, and they walk around and just listen to all that stuff all the time. So they know you love your music. Well, there's a study done by, let's see, who is this? I think this is Kaiser Family Foundation did this study. It's a couple of years old, but it's the best information I have. And what they did is they looked at the pattern of media use. So in 1999, they did big surveys with young people between uh, 8 and 18 years old. How much time did they spend on television? How much time did they spend listening to music? How much time did they spend on a computer? How much time did they spend in video games? How much time did they spend with print content? Movies. And then they calculate total media exposure. 
In 2009, the last time they did one of these big surveys, hopefully they're going to do one this year. I think it's time. They found that the average person between 8 and 18 years old spends 7 hours and 38 minutes a day absorbing media content. Every day. That does not count reading spent doing homework, time spent on the computer doing homework, or making phone calls talking to your friends. Every day. Then they began to realize that people were multitasking. They're doing multiple media things simultaneously. So you're sitting and watching a movie on the TV, and you're surfing a web page at the same time. They call it multiple screen lifestyle. Okay? So now they have to measure what's the total media impact when you're multitasking on media. And when they make that measurement, they found out the total media exposure for 8-year-olds to 18-year-olds every day is 10 hours and 45 minutes of total media exposure. Now, these, I would add one observation. That wasn't with Scripture. That was 10 hours and 45 minutes of impact on your life that had nothing good, very likely. Okay. And so though we have access to lots of media, we're often not thinking about how much we're using and the impact it's having. I'm not saying get rid of media. I'm not saying don't listen to music. I'm not saying don't have an iPod. I'm not saying don't use the internet. I am saying be conscious about what you're doing and make sure you're getting what you want. In studies that have been done, and this is not by Christians, this is by the American Pediatric Association, they have gone through and done extensive studies to look at the impact of media exposure to children. And they have found nothing good. Nothing. And then, this is not a Christian institution. Studies have associated high levels of media use with school problems, attention, difficulties, sleep and eating disorders, obesity, and internet and cell phone have become important news sources and platforms for illicit and risky behaviors. That's their notice to parents. You probably never saw it. There's another one that they have. They have a recommendation that children under three should have zero exposure to media content. Zero. No videos. No games. No DVDs. Zero. Why? Because the formative years between zero and three is when all the core brain connections are made. And all this hyperstimulation can cause those brain connections to be rewired to where they will have attention difficulties later and other issues. And they just say right up front, don't do it. And these are not Christians. These are just doctors who deal with children all the time. And they, in their last study they came out with a few months ago, they specifically, and I apologize if any of you use this product, I'm just reporting, they, they went specifically after baby Einstein. And, and they really whacked on baby Einstein and said, there is absolutely no evidence of anything good that comes from this product. Zero. 
and they said it's not ethical for them to say that it does. Now, I'm going to flip very quickly through the next two slides because they may have a little more detail in them than we want to get into in this group. Um, I'm just going to tell you what I would have had there, but we won't focus on them. Is the influencers. Um, if you look at who has the biggest influential following on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, one of the number one people is Lady Gaga. She was the first person in the world to have a billion viewers of her videos on YouTube. One billion. Okay, Very influential. Nothing good about what she's sharing. Okay, And what you see is a trend that for a young woman to gain notoriety, she has to engage in illicit activity in order to get noticed. That's the trend. But that's also an influence on society. And our young women are being told, basically, you want to keep your boyfriend? You're going to have to be engaged with the illicit activity. You want to get noticed and liked? You better be engaged in illicit activity. And that message is reiterated over and over and over and over and over again. And remember, remember that thing of my me, my friends, my friends, friends, my friends, friends, friends? Every one of them who's engaging in all this media content and is absorbing these messages is influencing each other. All right. I'm going to lay off the, the media content. Whew. Okay, shake it out. Shake it out. Everybody shake it out. Let's talk about interruption. <clears throat> the Internet is designed to be an interruption machine. Okay? By the way it operates, it wants to get your attention and get you to look at things. So go ahead and pull up a news page. You've got this news story and this advertisement and this video and this thing and this thing that's crawling across over here and this little pop-up that's growing and shrinking and doing all this weird stuff over there. You've got about... 15, 20, 30, 50 different active components all going, hey, 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 look at me, 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 look at me. Okay. Is that neutral? Well, if we were to turn this into a physical situation, think about your running. And you're like a sports person. You're playing football or soccer or something like this. You're running, and somebody comes up and they bump you. Does that impact your running? Do you keep the same pace? Does it have any impact on you? It does. It throws you off your pace. If they hit you too hard, you'll fall over. Well, that's what's happening here. All these interruptions keep intruding on our minds, and there's actually a very interesting book written about it called The Shallows by Mr. Nicholas Carr. This man was a researcher and, and um, journalist. And he read lots and lots of things and was, wrote a lot. And then one day he's sitting out trying to read a book. And he got like two pages into it and his mind was just going everywhere. And he's like, oh, why can't I focus on this? Am I getting Alzheimer's? What's wrong with me? And so he started to have a medical test done. And he found out his problem was he had internet brain. Okay, 
that he is absorbing so much information from so many different sources that his brain cannot focus on any one of them for any substantial period of time. He's just scanning, going from one item to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, 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 next. The idea of staying focused on one thing for any substantial period of time, he's actually lost the physical capacity to do that. And this comes up in lots of ways. They did a study with office workers, and they asked them, how many times an hour do you check your email? The average answer was two to three times an hour. But when they would take and put a camera on the computer and monitor what people were doing, they would see that their eyes would shift to their inbox 30 to 40 times an hour. Every one of those was a break in concentration where you had to, you stopped thinking about what you're doing, you came back, you had to rethink, reload your mental apparatus with what you're doing and start all over again. Can, does that have any impact on productivity? And yet we feel like, oh, I'm the master of all. I can multitask. I can do it all. I can see it all. I've got, and, and before I read this book, I had a Twitter feed. I had Facebook, I had a, not Facebook, I had a Skype. I had an internal team chat. I had a, another thing that was going on over here, all with news feeds coming in. I would have 30 browser windows going. I'd have my calendar. I'd have a log that I was writing things into, and I had multiple screens, and boy, I'm, I'm at it. I'm, I'm being really productive. Wrong. My cognitive capacity is so shredded by all these different stimuli that my brain is just going from one thing to the next to the next, not able to focus and accomplish anything. Each glance represents a small interruption and concentration. Think of it physically. You're sitting at a desk, you're trying to do work, and somebody comes up and taps you on the shoulder. Hey. 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 Like that. Now, how long would that have to go on before you turn around and say, knock that off? <laughs> but we do it to ourselves. And he noticed that he had lost the ability to focus deeply. Now, he's not a Christian, but in Christian terms, what I would say is he found he lost the ability to meditate because his mind was so distracted. And what we actually find is that when they go in and look deeper is that your brain actually becomes restructured. If you think of an athlete, there's at least a couple of different kinds of muscle tissue in an athlete's legs. They're short twitch muscles, and there's long twitch muscles. And if you're a sprinter, you want lots of short twitch muscles. That's the fast ones. And if you're a marathoner, you want lots of slow twitch muscles because that's the endurance ones. So think of your brain before the internet as long twitch. You're able to sit down and concentrate, meditate, ruminate, learn information, and think deeply about the implications and long-term consequences. But now, when you're getting hit by a hundred different stimuli every moment, and you're trying to absorb all of it, it's like your brain goes into short, short twitch mode. Got to deal with this and deal with this and deal with this, deal with this. And when you're given the opportunity to sit down and, and read, you can't do it. 
Your brain's not wired that way anymore. And so those of you who are trying to study deeply may find yourselves looking into the Bible and you're not getting anything out of it. You, you, know, you look at the page, your mind starts drifting, and you're like, well, okay, I looked at it. I don't get it. Now, the good news is it's reversible. Okay? And this guy, he tells in this book about what he went through in order to be able to write the book. He moved from an urban area. He got rid of his internet. He turned off his mobile phone. And he said for about three months, his brain screamed at him for stimulus. And finally, it began to calm down and he was able to think deep, long, sustained thoughts again. And he was able to do the research to write the book. Oh, it's fascinating that this guy as a non-Christian had that experience. I think there are many implications for us in, the, in faith. Now, another series of things to look at is this is a book by a Freudian psychiatrist. Again, he's not a Christian. He's from India. And one of his concerns is what he sees happening with the use of the Internet and, and digital social media things. One of the things he's noticed is the Internet is fast and gets faster all the time. Google's designed it to get as fast as possible. You know search is really fast. So fast, it starts guessing what you might want to look at before you even type it. Why? Because the faster it is, the more ads you see, the more money they make. It's all driven by their business model. Their business model says if we can get them to use the Internet faster, then we make more money. So let's make them use it faster. But that means you're bombarded with more and more stimulus. What he's saying is that as we respond to things quicker, everything, and we're talking about Twitter now or Facebook or something like this, information comes in and we respond instantly. We've sent off a response. But he says, this is circumventing conscience and self-control. The faster we respond, the less opportunity there is for our conscience and self-control to intervene. And he doesn't put in exactly those terms. He talks about psychological terms. But if you were to take his great fear and he were to say it in Christian terms, he would say that the way we operate with the Internet and all the things that cause us to respond quickly is that we're getting into a, a habit of avoiding our conscience. And we're headed straight for a pre-Diluvian way of living where whatever the vile desire that bubbles up in your heart, that's what you act on instantly without thinking through any consequences at all. And of course, Scripture says, see the man who's hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. What he notices when we use even something as simple as email is that we are more aggressive, we're more demanding, we're more rude, we're more self-centered, more violent, we're more detached, we're more exhibitionist, and we're more engaged in fantasy across the board. And we see this in our everyday work life. If you deal with email a lot, when was the last time that you read an email that made you feel good? There's no greeting, there's no conclusion, there's usually a short demand that wants to be answered right now. And that influences how we interact with each other when we're not on email. So instead of going and talking to somebody politely, 
we may just give them a sort of because now we're treating them like an email. Narcissism. That's a big word. This is a picture of Narciss, the fellow who saw his image in, a, in water, and he liked it so much, he stayed there until he starved to death. Okay, that's the Greek uh, origin of the word. A complete fascination with self. They did a survey of some young people and asked them this question. My generation is the most self-promoting, narcissistic, overconfident, attention-seeking than previous generations. 65% said, yep, that's us. <laughs> there is a strong measurable correlation between high scores on the narcissism screening tool and those who had the most Facebook friends. Because you have to make yourself look exciting. It's a PR opportunity. So you're in your best clothes, you got your best smile, you're with best friends, you're always having fun, and you're constantly putting out this image of, hey, I'm a fun, cool person, this is who I am, but it's all focused about you. All right. Shake it out, shake it out, shake it out. We're not too far from the end. I know it's tiring. There's a lot of information and I want you to be aware. This lady, her name is Dr. Shirley Turkle. She wrote a book called Together Alone. She's not a Christian. She's a PhD Freudian psychiatrist who works at MIT for 30 years. Her job is to study the interface between humans and technology. These are some trends that she has noticed in her research. Young people that text rather than talk so, have you ever seen a collection of young people around a table and every head's bowed, but they're not praying, <laughs> and they're texting to one another, but they're not talking to each other? Or they're sitting across the room from one another, texting, but not talking, or even sitting on the sofa next to each other, texting and not talking. What is going on? Well, Dr. Turkle explains, she says that what's happening is texting is less dangerous than talking. And when the text comes in, I have some control over it. It's a short message. I can absorb it. I can think about it. I can formulate my response. I can send it back. And there's a separation and there's less risk. Basically, what I've done is I've fragmented my personality. And I'm choosing to do something that's less risky than talking to people. And she's not just making this up. She's going and she's talking to young people, asking them what their motivations are. And some of them will say, you know, oh, I couldn't talk to them. If I were to talk to them, they might ask me something that I don't have an answer to. Or they might say something that was embarrassing or, or ask me something I didn't want to reveal. And so it's much safer for me to text. Do you see any problem with this? Where's the real relationships? Now, there is, a, there is a phrase that I think every parent should become aware of because many younger people who are into the technology think it even if they've never given a name to it. And that's called ambient intimacy. Ambient intimacy. And the idea is that wherever you go, 
your invisible cloud of friends and relationships go with you. And you are connected electronically to everybody you know and love at all times. And so at any moment, somebody does something, even if it's like, I just drank a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Well, I got to know about that. <laughs> and so I'm connected with them just as if I were with them. If you take this out of their hand, you have cut them off from this cloud of friends and this sense of being part of a larger entity than themselves. And that's an intense feeling of loneliness and separation. Phone is prioritized over people. And I'm sure none of you have ever seen this before. You're sitting there talking to someone face to face and you hear mm, some of these little hummers going off. And while they're talking to you, they go, hold up the phone between you and them and they're reading the text that came in. Or you're in the middle of a conversation, hmm, hey, Joe, yeah, right in the middle of the sentence. Okay. This has become the most important person in the room. Even in long academic discussions about etiquette, there are many people who will take the case. It's just change. You have to get used to it. This is priority. There was a young man she interviewed that said, I have to know who texted me. I don't care if it's dangerous when I'm driving. I will always look. I will always look. Discomfort with direct contact. The more our relationships are mediated electronically, the more we do it through Facebook and Twitter and texting and all these types of things, though we have the sense that we're connected with people, we actually lose the skill to engage in a face-to-face -face conversation and actually share our souls with one another. That becomes scary and difficult. Social media and emotional hunger. We use social media to stay connected with people and to maintain our relationships. And it's fulfilling to us in many respects because we get a lot of benefit out of knowing this information and staying connected. But what we were really designed for was relationship directly with people sharing things with them, seeing the emotion in them, sharing our emotions with them, connecting at our spirit level with them. And you, can't, you really can't do that with social media. And so what happens is that hunger is not fulfilled. And what do we do? Well, we spend more time on Facebook because we feel lonely and we want to be more connected. So the more lonely we feel, the more we do on Facebook, the more people we try to get, the more friends we need but then we still feel empty. So we go do more. It's gotten to the point now where one of the trends is people having to take Facebook sabbaticals because they're just exhausted. They are so tired of trying to keep up and respond to everybody, they just run out of energy and they just have to drop off. But the hunger drives them to come back. Uh, I already mentioned this thing of going 24-7. Uh, even people who are in professions that never had to deal with that are acting as if everything they do is mission critical. And then the last one is, she has a whole half of the book on this, non-human friends. And that the technologist's future for us is robotic friends and relationships. It's starting with the elderly. The, this started in Japan where they have a very large elderly population and they don't have a lot of people to care for them, so they're building robots to care for the elderly. And this has become a really big business. 
There are nursing homes in the states that have already started purchasing these machines. Some of them are designed to do things like turning them over in bed, helping to bathe the person, and some of them are companions who are there to keep the person company. Now, in her research, Dr. Turkle relates a case where she was explaining how the, the vision of the future is that not only will we care for the elder with robots, but then we'll start to raise our children with them as well. Because after all, children are messy and time-consuming. So isn't it better for a robot to do that? You can go do productive work. And then, of course, the next step is that we'll just our normal companions, even our mates, would be a machine. And she said that to a group of graduate students. And afterwards, a young lady who was uh, getting her master's degree came up to her and said, well, Dr. Turkle, when you were talking about having these robotic companions, I was very interested in that. I was wondering, where could I purchase one of those? And she said, um, are, are you joking me? She said, no, 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 I'm quite serious. I, I really find that appealing. Could I purchase one of those? She goes, don't you realize it's not real? It's a machine. It doesn't really care about you. She says, well, I think it'd be better than the boyfriend I have. You know, it would probably wash the clothes and cook meals for me and care about me and understand what my needs are and help take care of me. It's real enough, was her phrase. And her contention is our obsession with mediated relationships is the training wheels for a robotic companionship future. It's always been true that our tools shape us. If you're a, if you're a, a carpenter and you hammer all day, you're going to have a real strong hammer arm. But the tools we're using are rewiring the way we think, the way we perceive, and the way we interact. And we need to be aware of it. Again, I'm not saying go throw this in the trash, but I am saying use it with intention and awareness. Uh, I think this is going to be okay. Uh, this is pretty toned down stuff. I won't spend a lot of time on this because there's so much that's been said about these negative things on the web. Those who'd sent nude or semi-nude photographs of themselves electronically, usually from their phone, 20% of teens between 21 and 20 and 33% of adults between 20 and 26. Uh, young women have done this to keep boyfriends taking um, explicit photos of themselves and sending it to friends. And then when the boy breaks up with them, he's put it on a website or shared it to everybody in the school, and some girls have actually committed suicide over it. And those who are doing it with text messages is a much higher percentage. Again, because we think nobody knows, we engage in activities that we think are secret, which are actually risky and destructive, like the American Pediatric Association said. Um, another thing to be aware of here is that, remember that thing I said about phones being involved in something like 30% of divorces? Your sins will find you out. Remember Tiger Wood? The best account I saw of that was that he was at home and 
messages on his phone that his wife saw revealed he was involved in illicit relationships. She confronted him with this. There was an argument that ensued, and she chased him out of the house with a golf club. And that's how he was found unconscious in the driveway. But the Lord tells us that everyone who looks on a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her. And this is something I'm going to probably make some of you uncomfortable with. That's not true for just lust. It's true for virtual violence as well. Many of us think it's harmless to play violent video games and kill and destroy and conduct mayhem. But the scripture says everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The Lord tests the righteous and his soul hates the wicked, the one who loves violence. And this is not going to be very popular, but I'm going to say, if you are a lover of violence, please take this to heart. If you love violent movies, if you love violent video games, please take this to heart. And I say this as someone who is guilty of it myself. One of my favorite uh, books I used to read many years ago was about an assassin. And I had collected every single book in the series. I had 70 or 80 books about it. And I just loved reading it. But when the Lord opened my eyes to it, I had to burn them all. Because I realized I was a lover of destruction and violence. See, we tend to make this case that if you're doing it on the web, if you're doing it electronically, it's not real. It's okay to go kill people on a video game because it's not real. It's okay to look at people and lewd things on the web or something like that because it's not real. It's just out there. It doesn't really involve, it doesn't hurt anybody. But the Lord says that's not true. Morality applies whether it's in your mind or in your body. And in the virtual world, real morality is in force. All right. Shake it out, shake it out, shake it out, shake it out. We're at the end. We're at the end. Suggestions. So after all this bad news, all this information, what do we do? I have a few suggestions. Is this what your mealtime looks at your, your home? <laughs> you might consider banning technology from the mealtime so that nobody can bring a phone to the table, no computers, no iPads. Somebody came up to me afterwards and said, well, you got my phone, but you didn't get my iPad. <laughs> okay, I just got you now. Okay. You might consider trying a fast from technology. Uh, I, would con I would encourage you to try it for 24 hours. Just to try it. You might pick a Sabbath day. That might be a good day to do that. Just lock up the phones, turn off the internet access, turn off all the stuff, and just be quiet. And what you'll probably find is it's intensely annoying to you. But let me say this. The more difficult you find it, that's an indicator of how deeply it's embedded in your life and how much a control it has over you. So let that be a danger signal to you. The harder you find this to do, 
the more risk you're at with it. You might consider technology Sabbath. You might choose the Sabbath day to do that, where you just unplug on a regular basis some period of time. Uh, Technology-free zones. This is something that we're looking at in our home. Um, we had one room in the house where we had no technology. So if you walk in that room, there's no phones, there's no internet, you just sit down and you can converse or you can read, but that's about all you can do in that room. You might consider that. We have friends who have a box by the door of their house. So when you walk in, you leave your gun at the door. I mean, you just, everybody puts their phones in that box. When you come in the house, and you just have time together there. Technology etiquette. Parents, this one applies to you. You really, really, really need to work on technology etiquette. Is it acceptable that this is the most important person in the room? That a text message and a phone call overrides the interaction you have with that person in real life? Your children will not learn that unless you model it and reinforce it and train it continuously. And if you don't, the consequences will be they'll continue down that path of this being the most important person in the room. If you're doing work, like homework, you might consider reading and writing without web access for periods of time. I know that sounds anathema because you're going on Google to look things up all the time. But here's the bad side of Google. We all say, well, I don't even know what that is anymore. I'll just go Google it. And many of the technologists will say, it makes us more creative. It gives us more information. It makes us better, more knowledgeable people. And on one sense, we have access to more information. But on another sense, we are less creative and less innovative because none of it lives in here. See, the information has to be in here for you to work on it offline and for you to mix ideas and to think creatively and come up with new solutions. If nothing's living in here, you're not going to be an innovator. You're not going to be the person who comes up with the breakthrough because it won't happen if you're only getting off Google. Think about long-term consequences. Um, young people and older people. University choice is impacted by this. University uh, intake are looking at your social media as are potential employers. And they've gotten more sophisticated as time goes by. So you can go and clean up your profile, but they now they look at all what your friends' profiles look like. And so if you're all nice and clean and wearing a tie and looking clean and cut up, but many of your friends are doing gonzo stuff, they're going, oh, this guy cleaned up his act, but his crowd is engaging in risky behavior. They're probably not who we want for this elite program. It's probably not who we want for this responsible position. It will impact your choice of spouse. What you decide and how you present yourself almost assuredly will be part of the process that a future spouse will go through in evaluating whether they'll even show interest in you. Personal safety. 
what most people don't know is that many times Facebook uh, resets your privacy settings. So if you're a really good Facebook user and you've gone and set your privacy settings for who can see what, almost every time when they roll out a new whatever, they reset your privacy settings back to zero. Now, I, I presented this information in a group of young people, and one of the girls objected. She says, that's not true. I know I've got my privacy settings set, and my stuff's there. And I said, well, okay, I'm sorry. I, I thought that was correct. Well, the next day she came to me and says, I was wrong. She went and she found her privacy setting was set back to zero. And she said, that explains it. I said, explains what? I had, she's about 17. She said, I had this 40-year-old man who contacted me and said, I really like your, your pictures. Could you come and be a model for me? She says, how did you get my pictures? Now she knows. Personal safety. Also, there's a whole thing known as Facebook thieves. They monitor your feeds of what you're doing. So you're going like, I just had a coffee at Starbucks. They go, great, you're not at home. I'm going to steal your stuff. <laughs> and of course, personal witness. Did it ever occur to you to think about the witness that you're projecting in the Facebook profile that you keep? Is that one of the reasons you want to use Facebook? How would you use it for that? Oh, he's a young man who is surrounded by beer bottles. He's doing like one of these angel things on the ground. He's, he's passed out, and his friends have lined around his body with beer bottles. And that's a Facebook photo. Do you think that's going to help him get into an elite university program? Some additional suggestions. Learn to use technology rather than it using you. Spend more time with people intentionally. One of the first things you can do about that is start to recognize how much time you spend with technology. Start consciously thinking about that. Did you think you spend seven hours a day looking at media? You may not, but the average person does. So you might want to take, a, take note of what you're doing. Establish safety boundaries. Parents, this is really crucial. Um, that you would lay down guidance for what types of technology different children can use, different stages of life, and give them specific, detailed, and extensive instruction and practice in how to do it. Treat the web, mobile, media, social media, as you would a car. Would you hand the keys to a car to a 13-year-old and say, hey, go practice? You wouldn't, would you? But you'll give somebody permission to open a Facebook account. Or you'll hand them a mobile phone. They can access the web without a filter and never think a thing about it. Don't throw it away but treat it like the dangerous tool that it is. It requires conscious preparation, planning, and training to use well. And you need to have a curriculum in your home, whether you homeschool or not, about how your children will be introduced to technology, how they'll be taught to use it, and how to avoid its dangers. You're the only one who'll do it.
Commercial industry is not going to. The last thing I'll say is be romantic. Really romantic. Spend time with each other. Husbands, spend time with your wives. Parents, spend quality time with your children. And I'll finish with this last story. There was a young woman who was going to meet a young man. And uh, she heard some good things about him. So they were meeting at a neutral location. And she arrived and put her phone on the table. We often do that, don't we? Just put the phone on the table. He arrived and he sat down and he didn't put the phone on the table. And she said, oh, did you lose your phone? And he said, oh, no. He says, when I knew I was coming to meet you today, I left my phone at home so I'd be able to focus on our time together. Now, when that girl shared that with her girlfriends, they all went, oh, that's the most romantic thing I've ever heard. Because they had never experienced that before. An hour of somebody's undivided attention just in relationship. So that inspired a young woman who was a designer to come up with this handkerchief that has silver threads that run through it. And if you're a physics person, you know that something called a Faraday cage, if you wrap it around something, it can block radio, radio emissions. And so you can take this handkerchief, wrap it around your phone, and it cannot receive the signal from the cell phone tower or the internet or anything. It is completely harmless at that point. And she embroidered a little phrase in it that says, my phone is off for you. So the idea is, you whip out this little hanky, wrap up your phone, leave the little phrase, my phone's off for you, and you put it in the middle of the table, and you look at the other person and say, I'm all yours. And some of you responded to that. Like, that'd be pretty cool. But increase the value you place on other people. Decrease the value you put on the intermediate between you and other people. Remember, Jesus came to die so we would not have to have a mediated relationship with God. Let's continue the privilege of having unmediated relationships with each other. Thank you. You've been very attentive.